Welcome along to the Racing News 365 Formula 1 podcast. I'm Thomas Marr and I'm joined by Dieter Rankin, who has just flown back from Bahrain, where we've just had the uh, barnstorming season opener, Dieter. What a thrilling race to get the 2021 season underway. Absolutely, Thomas. I mean, you know, we, we all thought that it would be a walkover for Red Bull after the testing. And uh, we had a look at it. And I mean, there was Max top of the timesheets, um, Yuki Tsunoda second in testing. And everybody was convinced we're looking at basically, if I could use the term, a blue wash. And uh, we were pleasantly surprised to see that there was a serious tussle at the at the sharp end. And of course, that that Lewis eventually beat Max, admittedly after a controversial pass by Max. And of course, he had to give the position back. And I think that that gives us an ideal in into discussing the uh, the track limit situation. Yeah, the track limits very much dominated headlines after the Grand Prix, of course, because we saw in the first half of the race, uh, Lewis running wide at turn four quite a lot. Um, into an area that that wasn't really being monitored by race control uh, during the Grand Prix, despite the fact it had been during practice and qualifying. So you can understand why people were, you know, a little bit miffed, a little bit confused when Max Verstappen did it later in the race, went around the outside of Lewis Hamilton to complete the pass there at the same corner, and then was told immediately, hand that place back. Yep, yep, that was that was very confusing. Uh, that said, I think we should see against the background that Lewis, although he had breached the, the the physical track limits, had not actually gained a positional advantage. He may have gained a performance advantage, but not a positional advantage. Whereas, of course, Max did. Without breaching that track limit, uh, Max could not have completed the pass on Lewis, or I doubt whether he could have. And accordingly, I do believe that you had to give it back. But I think they should, in fact, have come down on Lewis earlier in the race and said, hey, you're breaching track limits. You know, this isn't on. If you don't stay inside it, we'll give you a warning, give you a black flag or whatever the case is. And I think this is this is really where the, the confusion arose. There was a bit of a, an ambiguity to the whole situation in that um, the race director's notes, Michael Massey's notes before the Grand Prix itself had said that they weren't going to be monitoring the track limits for the purpose of lap time. But in the sporting regulations, then it goes into detail on that and it says um, a driver has to be seen to be making an effort to stay within the circuit and also that he can't be seen to be gaining a lasting advantage. In your opinion, uh, time time itself is kind of a lasting advantage over a Grand Prix distance. Do you think that definition within the sporting regulations needs tightening up? Well, I think, Thomas, the point is time is, of course, an advantage. But if you don't get past somebody, it's not. (laughs) And I think this is where that sort of gray area is. Uh, You know, had Lewis been able to catch up uh, consistently, nonstop, take half a second per lap, etc., until eventually he was close enough to max to be able to overtake him, we could say it's a lasting advantage. Um, but, however, in this particular case, that didn't really apply. And let's not forget, we had the the order changing because people were were on different strategies. So Lewis was was in first, etc. So from that perspective, I think the um, uh, the the situation was such that the lasting advantage is a lot more difficult to define. So it was no real surprise, despite their preseason testing form, that Mercedes, you know, showed up in Bahrain and were immediately, you know, much more competitive than we thought they might be 
ahead of the preseason. Uh, what did you make of the Mercedes Red Bull battle? Were you surprised to see Mercedes jump right back up to the front alongside Red Bull? I wasn't surprised that they'd managed to claw some time back. Not at all, because I mean that's basically what race teams do. And let's not forget, Mercedes is an excellent race team. So I wasn't surprised they'd been able to claw some time back. I was surprised at how much they'd been able to claw back, particularly in view of the fact that the um, the 2021 technical regulations. Um, make it more difficult for what we call a low-rate car to to recover, whereas the high-rate cars hadn't lost as much uh, downforce uh, on a pro-rata basis as the low-rate cars. And, of course, rake is is effectively, if I could try and uh, describe it, as the nose being down and the, and the rear being up in the air, uh, whereas a low-rate car is almost uh, level. And, of course, when you have a higher rear end, you have more area under the car. If you have more area under the car, you've effectively got a greater diffuser effect. So the uh, when the FI cut back on the floor dimensions, they obviously did that to reduce the downforce because Pirelli were concerned about the, um, the stresses on the tires, which incidentally would have gone into their second uh, into their third year now because they were 2019 tires rolled over for 2020, and the plan had been to retain these for 2021. Accordingly, the FIA said we'd need to reduce downforce. Subsequently, Pirelli said, look, we'd prefer to bring a beefed-up tyre, but by then the reduced downforce regulations were in place already. And this then meant that uh, the the high-rate cars pro rata lost less downforce because, they got, as I said, there's this greater underfloor area. And um, therefore, I was surprised that Mercedes had, with their low-rate design, been able to recover as much as they did. And tellingly, they recovered a lot more than Racing Point, which, as we know, that the Racing Point is effectively a, a self-confessed photocopy of the Mercedes and is therefore also a low-rate car. And uh, Mercedes recovered a lot more than, than Racing Point. Now, Aston Martin did. Yeah, and, and Aston Martin team boss, Otmar Safnar, was very vocal over the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend. He, he basically, every time he could speak to media, uh, he was complaining about the higher rate cars and the lower rate cars uh, losing out as a result of this uh, regulation change over the winter. Mercedes, they, were, they also complained quite a bit, maybe not quite as vocally as Aston Martin did. Uh, but there were some comments from Mercedes to imply that this was done, this regulation change was done in order to, you know, change the pecking order a little bit, maybe rein in some of Mercedes' dominance. Do you think there's merit to that? I don't buy that at all, Thomas. Uh, fundamentally, because all the way through until testing, none of the technical directors were actually sure whether or not the um, aerodynamic cutback would affect the high rake or low rake cars more or less or whatever because it was very, very difficult to gauge. Accordingly, I don't believe that it was done to peg back Mercedes. Uh, I do believe it was done, as I said earlier, uh, in the interests of, of uh, Pirelli concerns. And I think that uh, this is a side effect thereof, that the low-rate cars have been affected. One of the more humorous aspects is that, of course, last year when uh, Racing Point, as it was, announced their 2020 car and everybody pointed out that this was a a dead ringer for the Mercedes. 
uh, one of the comments made by Andrew Green was that they'd been prepared to take the risk because there was no real risk because everything would reset from 2021 onwards. Well, of course, what then happened is that COVID came along and the regulation change that was due in 21 got pushed out to 22. So it turns out that there was a massive risk in in, in effectively copying the, the Mercedes philosophies. And they're now paying the price for that. Otmar Safnar explained over the Bahrain weekend that they never even had a chance to, to vote on these changes, but that the changes were forced through upon them. And th- this is kind of the source of most of his his complaints. Do, do you feel any sympathy for, for Aston Martin considering their position of starting from copying the Mercedes? Uh, no, I don't feel any sympathy for them from that perspective. And I also don't feel any sympathy for them from a rule change perspective for the very, very simple reason that nobody had a, a, a vote in this matter because, as I said earlier on, Pirelli were concerned about the integrity of their tyres being rolled into the third year and the ever-increasing amounts of downforce that the teams had developed since 2019. Therefore, they, they would have run with 20, 20, in 2021 with tyres that had been developed for 2019 levels of downforce. Therefore, Pirelli said, we're concerned about the stresses. Uh, This, of course, raises a safety issue. And as we know, the FIA does have a veto wherever safety is raised and they can trigger a a regulation change without any vote. And that's exactly what they did. I do believe that what the FIA did is act most responsibly. Uh, And uh, unfortunately for for Racing Point, Aston Martin and Mercedes, uh, they're now paying the price for that. But in the past, there have been other regulation changes that have been forced through and others have benefited. And this is Formula One. It swings and roundabouts. You cannot keep everybody happy all the time. Mercedes have been kept pretty happy for the last seven years. Well, whether it was intentional or not, it's had the effect of equalizing the performance somewhat between the high-rake Red Bull and the low-rake Mercedes. And that was very evident in Bahrain. And the thing is, then we had the likes of Andrew Shovelin from Mercedes explaining that it's it's a physical impossibility at this point for Mercedes to even think about uh, trying out the concept or, or trying to change the concept of the W12. So that means that this performance uh, balance we currently have between Red Bull and Mercedes is quite likely to be locked in for the rest of this season. Uh, absolutely. And to the same degree, I think the uh, the engine performance is basically going to be locked in uh, because, as we know, there's this, this sort of freeze this engine freeze. So I think that a lot of the performance, uh, the pecking order will be locked in. I, I don't see any reason why we should expect major changes going forward, certainly not in the short term. So when we look forward to Imola the next weekend, obviously everything that we've seen on track so far this year has occurred on, on the one track in Bahrain. We now head to a new venue for the first time this year. There's, there's no reason to think that it won't be Red Bull against Mercedes again at Imola, is there? Uh, I, I don't see any reason, no. Um, I think we are going to see a very, very tight fight at the sharp end. I think that Checo Perez will probably uh, be part of that fight as well. So I think we're talking at least four cars uh, at the sharp end, namely the two Mercedes and the two uh, Red Bulls. 
I think that if we look at the Ferrari performance and particularly sort of being being a, a home track, I mean, it's it's called the Enzo Edino Ferrari circuit. Uh, they would also, I think, put their best foot forward. So I think we're probably talking six cars, maybe even eight cars, really close at the, at the sharp end. You mentioned Sergio Perez there, and Sergio, of course, had his debut with Red Bull Racing at the last race in Bahrain. Didn't get off to the best of starts. Qualifying was a bit tricky for him. Uh, Going into the race, then he had that issue on the formation lap, and he ended up starting from the pit lane. And after that, he just turned in an absolutely fantastic performance to recover back to fifth place. How happy do you think Red Bull will be when they compare the performances of drivers from the past few years? Oh, I think com- compared to Alex Albon, um, I-, I think that they have absolutely no reason to regret having having taken Checo on for this year. Um, I wasn't surprised that he had a bit of a torrid time during during te- uh, qualifying. He does tend to do that. You know, Checo's never really been a, a top draw qualifier. But once he's, he's got the bit between his teeth, he really goes at it. He's like a dog with a bone and just doesn't let go. We saw that last year in uh, the Sakir Grand Prix, which, of course, he won. Uh, we've seen it in the past as well, where he really, once he's on it, he really is on it and goes for it. And I think that they don't regret at all uh, um, taking him on for this year. The, the battle at the head of the midfield looks like it's going to be you know, between McLaren and Ferrari, both of whom showed pretty good performances in, in Bahrain, particularly McLaren. Uh, Alpha Tauri, they fell maybe a little bit short after uh, Pierre Gasly crashing into Daniel Ricciardo on, on the first lap and taking himself out of contention. But where where do you see the balance of power in the in the midfield, Dieter? I think it's got to got to favour uh, McLaren, and in fact, they could also be. You know, we we could even have ten cars running pretty close together at the front. Um, you know, McLaren do have that that sort of trick diffuser solution. Um, they managed to claw back, I believe, percentage wise, more downforce than any of the other teams. Uh, they do, of course, for this year have the uh, Mercedes engine, which last year they were running the Renault. There's no doubt that the Mercedes is a more user friendly engine. Um, and I believe more powerful. And then, of course, they they have in in Dan Ricciardo and um, Lando Norris, two really really turned on drivers. So you know, I think that McLaren has probably got the um, the upper hand. I think at Imola, though, we should never forget the home advantage for Ferrari. Let's talk about Sebastian Vettel, who is trying to turn over a new leaf this year with Aston Martin. And testing was a disaster. And then the Bahrain weekend was a bit of a disaster for him as well. He's still adjusting to to the new car, the new team. But his driving still has question marks, uh, Dieter. There was that crash towards the end of the race with Esteban Ocon. Uh, Do you think his head will drop a little bit as a result of the weekend he had with, with five penalty points as well? Well, you know, you say that he, he had a rough time in testing, he had a rough time in Bahrain during the race. Let, let's be honest, Thomas, he's had a rough time for the last 15-odd months. <laughs> you know, testing last year wasn't particularly scintillating. If we have a look at his Ferrari performances from July onwards, once the season restarted, um, you know, they just weren't the performances of a four-time world champion. And I'm rather concerned that, that Sebastian has somehow got to a stage where He's, he knows that he's reaching the end of his career and he has let, let his head drop already. 
but hasn't yet admitted it to himself. And he sort of thinks, well, I'm a Formula One driver. I'm good enough to be here. But I mean, the, uh, the, there are all sorts of comments in the paddock at the moment that I've heard in the past about other drivers who also, frankly, were past it. I fear that that Sebastian is past his natural uh, driving career. Which is unusual because he's he's still quite young. He hasn't really kind of reached that kind of stereotypical age that you associate with with drivers dropping off the off the cliff basically towards the end of their careers. But five penalty points in two days, crashing into Esteban Ocon. He, he has spoken in the past about not being willing to engage the services of a sports uh, psychologist. Do you think there would be merit? for Vettel to do that, to maybe see if he can reclaim some of that mojo that he's lost? Well, only if he really deep down inside wants to reclaim some of that mojo. And I think this is the uh, the primary question. Does he really, really, really want to? I got the impression that, you know, after Ferrari had had basically given him the uh, the card, that he felt, well, that means I can't leave uh, Formula One on my terms. So let me see whether I can find somewhere where I can go in the interim and then leave on my terms. And, of course, he was attractive to to Aston Martin, um, and they took him on. But I believe that his primary motivation has actually been to find a season, a team in which he can race and then leave on his terms and say, right, I have decided to retire, as opposed to having a situation where he was retired by the team that he was with and I think that uh, we're going to have that it's a situation very very similar to what we had with Damon Hill towards the end of his career you know he'd been a world champion Um, he then left Williams Uh, he went elsewhere to Arrows and then he went from there to to um, Jordan uh, but somehow it didn't, didn't ever really gel thereafter. And, um, you know, when, when Damon eventually left, he looked a bit of a haunted man. And I fear that we're going to see the same with, with Sebastian. Well, let's hope he's able to turn it around and he's able to do so because Vettel in his prime was uh, a stunning talent. So it'd be great to be able to see uh, Vettel you know, refine some of that magic and help bring Aston Martin back uh, closer to the front. So over the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend, one of the big stories to emerge actually came from the FIA, Dieter, and that was the introduction of spot checks at the end of each Grand Prix. Uh, They're going to be randomly selecting a car and they're going to break that car down as much as possible just to have a closer look. What what do you think is the, the reasoning behind this? Well, first of all, Thomas, it it sort of took us all in the media center a bit by surprise because, you know, they do have regular checks. I know the cars are self-scrutinized on Thursday, for example. Uh, So the FIA no longer has a good look at them then. But I think the FIA was rather concerned that the teams are interpreting some of the regulations in a different way to what was originally intended. And, uh, you know, obviously, if, if somebody looks at a particular picture in an art museum or something, you you would interpret it differently to, to the way that I would. And, uh, you know, that that's human nature. But occasionally this interpretation could, in the opinion of a team engineer, be on the on the right side of the of the intention. And it could also be on the left side of the intention. Um, so I think what the FIA is doing is running this sort of uh, control to ensure that the team stay on their on their toes, that they sort of say, well, let's rather check this out before we go down this route. Let's see whether that really is the right way to go, etc. One of the, the challenges the engineer faces is that obviously, um, being the governing body, it doesn't have anywhere near the sort of budgets available to the teams. 
Uh, collectively, I would guess the teams employ around about, an, on average, 200 each. So we're talking between two and 3,000 engineers. Uh, and the governing body's got a relative handful. So to control um, 10 different cars produced by up to 3,000 engineers collectively, and to try and control these with a handful of engineers is very, very difficult. And that's why they've decided on this. I do believe that there's also an element of um, checking to see that any of the copycat regulations, epitomized, of course, by the Mercedes-Benz Aston Martin case, are sort of within the spirit of the regulation and above all the law of the regulation, which says that if you have an eerily similar surface to another car, you need to be able to prove that this is actually your own intellectual property. So there are various checks and balances in this. What they'll do is divide a, a car up into about 25 areas and then uh, during the course of a race, pull a number out of a hat of one of the top 10 finishers and say to the team, right, you've been selected, make available all your information, get your, um, your CAD CAM systems up and running, you get your engineers back at base on the telephone or on Zoom or whatever. We're now going to look at, and they may have selected gearbox or hydraulics or front suspension, rear wing, whatever, any one of these 25 uh, categories of parts. And uh, hopefully that way they'll be able to police Formula One. Um, when I say better, I'm not saying that to date there's been any major shortcomings, but of course there's always room for improvement. And that, that was one thing the FIA really wanted to stress. It's that there is no suspicion being levied at the car being being checked out. It is literally just a, a, a spot check. There isn't any reason to believe that that team is cheating. Absolutely. And in fact, um, on Saturday evening, uh, Nicholas Tombatis, the FIA's head of single-seater technology, um, gave four of us, it was a very small exclusive group of, of four journalists, um, an interview in which he stressed exactly that. He said, if we have any suspicions, we have the power to go and have a look at that car in any event. This is literally a random check. So another thing we're looking at for later on this year, Dieter, is the introduction of sprint races. And uh, you've heard a few updates regarding what's going to happen with these sprint races. Well, let me stress that that anything that I've heard is not yet um, fully or formally agreed. And uh, also, you know, these things are still liable to change. Uh, however, I do believe that they've now agreed in, in broad brush terms to hold what will be known as sprint qualifying. Three races this year, uh, Silverstone and then Monza and uh, Brazil. These circuits having been chosen as they believe that they can best, best showcase the sprint qualifying format. Uh, there were, of course, concerns at, uh, at team level about the costs because obviously every time you have another turn one, you have enormous potential for damage. So there was that concern. Then the other area of concern was how do we sort out the tyre allocations? There was also concern about engines because obviously we got um, uh, lifed engines as a restricted quantity of engines per season and the teams are turning around and saying, well, you know, we're going to have another three or four races. Then obviously we need additional engine life. That means we need additional engines. So from that perspective, I believe that all these little points have sort of been ironed out. It's now a matter of formalizing it, putting it to a Formula One commission vote. Uh, 
and then the uh, FIA World Motorsport Council will formally ratify whatever the Formula One Commission has agreed, and then it passes into the regulation books. Uh, I believe that they've agreed to award points on a three-to-one basis for the top three finishers. I believe that there's an element to cover the um, the direct costs of running an additional race. There is also some form of compensation for damage, uh, that if your car does get damaged in during this the sprint qualifying race and you are forced to pit to repair that, then you'll be compensated. Obviously, if you not if you don't pit and if you carry on running, they'll say the minor is the damages of such a minor uh, type that you know we don't need to re, uh, reimburse you for it. And then, of course, there's also this question, as I said, of of tire choices or tire compounds for this race. Do they do a, a mandatory pit stop? Don't they, etc. And all these points, I believe, have now been agreed. We should know if not. Before Emola, I believe that we will know during the Emola weekend exactly what they've agreed on. It would be nice to to finally get some confirmation on this uh, because the rumours have been going around for so long. Um, but this sprint qualifying and the introduction of these of these short races on a Saturday, Dieter, do you not think this kind of flies in the face of the introduction of the budget cap a little bit? Um, well, I think we need to see it against uh, income, and I think that. You know, a budget cap is, is all well and good. However, if you can pay the teams more money and make them more profitable, and Liberty seems to believe that uh, the the sprint race will, in fact, generate more interest. It will enable them to charge better uh, hosting fees from, from circuits. It will enable them to charge higher broadcast uh, television rights fees. So from that perspective, I think that Liberty sees this as a as an opportunity, as a way of increasing Formula One's revenues, increasing the spectacle, because you know, ultimately I believe they're looking at something like tw- uh, tw- uh, five sprint races in a 25-race calendar. So you could be looking at potentially 30 races over a year, but even if they settle on, say, 20 main races and five sprint races, you're still on 25 races. And this is a better package to sell to broadcasters, to circuit promoters, etc. Means more money, means the teams earn more, etc. As far as the budget cap is concerned, well, you know, all I'd say it's a bit like a household. You know, you have a finite budget and uh, you have a look at what you need to do with that and you spend accordingly. Well, the next race then uh, next week is the Made in Italy Grand Prix. It's been renamed for this year, but uh, it's the same track we're going to be racing at Imola. Looking forward to it as the second round, Dieter. But uh, your predictions for the upcoming uh, Grand Prix in Italy? Well, as I said, I think it's going to be very, very close all the way down the, the field. I really mean that. Um, as per as for a winner, I've always said, Thomas, that if I really knew who was going to win, I'd be down the bookies. I wouldn't be writing or talking about it. Do you think Red Bull will be aiming to right some wrongs this time out? Um, I believe that they have a very, very strong chance. I don't believe that we could could exclude Red Bull from one or even two podium places. Um, The same applies to Mercedes. And I think we could also see one of each uh, on the podium plus one of the, um, the lesser fancy teams. Dieter, I think that just about covers everything we need to know uh, ahead of the next Grand Prix. Thank you very much for joining us on the uh, Racing News 365 podcast. Absolute pleasure to be in here. Thank you, Thomas. The Racing News 365 podcast will be back before the next Grand Prix.